This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We start with the verdict in the Aiden Coban trial now. Speaking of the justice system, it was justice served for the family of Amanda Todd, of course, the Port Coquitlam teen who tragically took her own life in 2012 after she was stalked and threatened by an online predator in court on Saturday. It was guilty, guilty five times over for Aiden Coban, the 44-year-old Dutch national who was brought to Canada to face trial here, found guilty on five charges, including extortion and harassment. I've got the mom of Amanda Todd's, Carol Todd, standing by here to talk about this verdict. First, let's have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Romina Dea. Everyone stunned. A decision was reached in this complicated two-month-long trial less than 24 hours after deliberations began Friday. The verdict, 44-year-old Dutch citizen Aidan Coben guilty on all counts. This is not what we hoped for or expected. Uh, and now we need to consider our options. So we'll speak to our client. An appeal is a possibility. He's disappointed, of course. Coben was found guilty of extortion, possession of child pornography times two, child luring and criminal harassment. All right, let's discuss this now with my guest, Carol Todd. Carol is the mother of Amanda Todd. She is the founder of the Amanda Todd Legacy Society. She is an advocate for victims of child luring and persecution. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Carol, thank you very much for coming on this morning. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's my my honor to have you here, Carol. Let me uh, ask you about how you felt on Saturday. I know you were in court there when these guilty verdicts were read. How did that feel for you? Um, It was a a shock to my system, but a good shock. Because we've been waiting so long for this trial to happen. Like The whole process of investigation and then extradition... And then he had to do his trial in the Netherlands before paperwork could be finished to get him here. And then he finally got here and then there were delays in trial dates. And I never thought that June 6th would ever really happen, right, in in a sense. But here we are nine weeks later with five counts of guilty. Yeah, what went through your mind when you heard those words, when guilty five times over and over again, read in court, what, what went through your mind there? I think I was the most apprehensive with the first when the first charge was read and the jury foreperson had to give their verdict, right? And when he said guilty, um, it was it was just like it's it's a better a very bittersweet moment. Um, mm. So I was I was elated. I was happy, and then. I was worried about charge two and charge three, which were the child pornography charges, because there was a difference between direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. Um, As reported, there were no videos or images found in his possession, although I believe personally he probably deleted them. Um, So the jury had to sift through all that 
to come up with their charges. And I know sitting in the gallery, right, as yeah. we charge four and charge five, we were just, uh, it, was, it was the moment for Amanda, right? This was for her. Speaking to Carol Todd, the mother of Amanda Todd and the guilty verdicts against Aidan Coban. Like we heard in that Global News report there, Carol, how the the jury came back pretty quickly here. I mean, as you mentioned, this was a long, complicated trial and the jury came back with with a verdict fairly quickly. When you heard the ju- the jury was back within like 24 hours, did were you worried that that would indicate a possible not guilty or did you think like, OK, this is a good sign? Well, you know, I've sat in the courtroom every day since June 6th, right? So I have seen as much, all the testimony, the same testimony as the jurors have. And there were, it was very complicated. It was really laid out. It was complex, right? So initially I was worried that they wouldn't be able to wrap their brains around it. But then um, the closing arguments of Crown was was very succinct and very precise. Um, So when, on, on Saturday morning... Initially, it came out the jury had a question, and they had a question on count five. Um, and I was worried that they were, like, count there at count five, did they determine the first four, or are they just skipping around? And then after they got their answer about count five, most of us left the courtroom for some fresh air, just to get a, a bit of a change. And within minutes, the sheriff nodded to me from outside and said, Miss Todd, you need to get back in the courtroom. They have mm-hmm. a verdict, and so it was. It, it was so fast. I, yeah. Did this Unprecedented guy? Too. Did this Sorry. guy? Did this guy, Aiden Coban, ever look at you in court or acknowledge you in any way? <laughs> um, I don't know if you know the layout of the courtroom, right? So the prisoners' box is just right in front of the gallery, and there's plexiglass, of course, separating the actual court courtroom where the council sits and the justice sits and then uh, we're in the gallery back here so you could sit in a location where um, you saw him and um, initially usually I sat in the back row there's only two rows of benches along the pathway that he took to get into his prisoner's box so yes we did we did uh, he might think differently right but we did have eye-to-eye contact, and um, I just wanted, I was there every day for Amanda, but I wanted to make sure that Mr. Kovan saw that, that I was there and that he saw me every single day. What did you think of, we in the, in the report we just played there, Carol, there was a, a, a comment from his lawyer saying, uh, raising the possibility of an appeal. What do you think of that? Um, it's possible. And I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I was I was in the Netherlands for the 2017 trial of Mr. Coban, and he also appealed that um, and lost his appeal the first time and appealed a second time. Um, however, he dropped his appeal so because he wanted to be extradited to Canada faster to get acquitted on these charges. He quote quote unquote. That's what he said. Do you feel? Do you feel at this point now that justice has been served, or, or are you waiting? Or will, will it not be over? I, I suppose this will never be over for you. But you know, you often hear people talk about the idea of closure. Closure. Like, does this bring a little bit I of closure know. for you? 
you know, I've seen that on my social media posts and through emails that, that this will provide closure. But if you talk to probably any parent who has lost a, a loved one or anyone that's lost a loved one, um, especially the suicide, there is no real closure. It's just another, it, it, it finalizes a chapter, but you always, there's always something else that moves on. So closure to me is finish, you forget about it, and, and that's not part of my vocabulary because as a mom, as an advocate, and the topic, the issues that concern Amanda's story, there's more work to be done out there, right, in order to, to protect the families and the young people and even older people who are susceptible to sextortion, right? There's more work to be done out there in the areas of online safety and awareness. Last question for you, Carol. The next phase of this would be a, a, a sentencing phase, correct? Yes, that's right. How is that going to unfold? Have they explained that to you? I believe there's two dates floating around, but the date I have written down is that um, the council and the justice and Mr. Coban will um, meet virtually on Thursday, August 11th, to discuss um, sentencing and scheduling. So scheduling of the sentencing. Um, and so I guess after that, I'll find out what the possible date is. And then I, I am tasked with writing my victim impact statement for this. And so many thoughts have been swirling in my head on what I'm going to write and how I'm going to write it, because this is this that will probably be the hardest thing that that I'm going to have to do in these last ten years, other than um, the actual physical death of my daughter. Carol, I'm, I'm certain that will be a difficult process for you, but I hope that these guilty verdicts uh, bring you some comfort here um, in the days ahead. And I want to thank you for coming on today. And thanks for having me, Mike. There are no words that can explain how my heart feels. It's, it's just a, a culmination of, of what Amanda endured and the truths of it all. And now Aidan Coban has been found guilty, which we, we knew, and justice has been served for Amanda. All right, that's the voice of Carol Todd, the mother of Amanda Todd, uh, who tragically took her own life in 2012 after she was stalked and threatened by an online predator. And as you heard Carol say there, guilty five times over for Aidan Coban, the 44-year-old Dutch national who was extradited to Canada. He's found guilty on five charges, including extortion, harassment, uh, child pornography possession. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Monique St. Germain, G General Counsel for the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. Monique, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. What are your thoughts on the these guilty verdicts in this case? Well, relief on our part. Um, this has been a long ordeal for Amanda's uh, family and friends, and it is a relief to see that the verdicts have come through as guilty. There's obviously a lot more to happen still. As Carol had mentioned, the sentencing process has yet to unfold. Yeah, and that sentencing process will be a difficult one for her. She described to me uh, on the show earlier this morning that she will have to write that victim impact statement. So right. This is, to, this is going to be the toughest thing she's she's gone through. Can you talk a little bit about the about the victims, the survivors, the families? You know, when they go through these sextortion cases, what is that? What kind of impact does that have? 
Well, it, it is an impact that radiates beyond the victim herself to the family and to other people who have been involved um, in terms of supporting the victim. These types of crimes are really, really difficult for all of us to wrap our minds around. In this circumstance, we've got an offender who's in a foreign country targeting a Canadian child. And what we're seeing play out in courtrooms coast to coast is we're seeing the same thing happening, or we've got offenders from Canada who are victimizing children in other countries as well as our own. So this is something that is playing out again and again, and it is a big, big problem problem that uh, the criminal justice system really is is the one on the front lines right now dealing with it but there's so much more that needs to be done yeah when we t- when we think about this issue of sextortion I guess there are many different types of that in the cases that we've been talking about we're talking about online predators who sometimes trap trap victims into some sort of filming sexual acts or sending them photos and then trying to blackmail them to not release photos I mean it's just the most disgusting and appalling type of criminal behavior how like how bad is is that right now like how widespread is that and do you think it's getting worse well it's absolutely getting worse so from the perspective of our our agency we operate cybertip.ca canada's tip line to report online sexual exploitation of children Um, we've been seeing a steady uptick in the number of these types of concerns coming to our attention, so much so that in July we had 322 different contacts of individuals coming in who had been victims of this type of offence. The police are also obviously experiencing a huge increase, and we've got StatsCan numbers to back that up. Yeah, we just got 30 seconds left here, Monique. Do you think we need more resources to deal with this? We absolutely do. And what we need to do is consider that this goes beyond the criminal justice system. There has to be some government regulation stepping in, in terms of the platforms, in terms of keeping children separate from online predators, and in terms of assisting police when they are investigating these types of offenses to get the data they need to do it. Hopefully the guilty verdicts in this case, especially such a complex case involving international different countries and extradition warrants and all the rest of it. Are you hopeful that, you know, this will be a a solid kind of uh, message to people who are thinking of doing this that that could reduce it sends a serious message to these offenders? Absolutely. Absolutely. And hopefully this is accompanied by a stiff sentence for this individual. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, let's talk about this brutal 
and terrifying machete attack on Granville Street on Saturday night. And this started when the Vancouver Police Department received a call about the smell of gasoline in a rooming house above the Roxy Nightclub in the Granville Entertainment District. Uh, They showed up, and then after that, the mayhem, the violence, the blood started to flow here. Absolutely insanity down there Saturday night on Granville Street. i got Doug Spencer standing by. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Grace Key. It happened around 10 p.m. Saturday in the Granville Entertainment District, just above the Roxy nightclub. Firefighters first responded to the blaze. There's just two firemen down the hallway with this bowie knife, and the firemen used their axe, and they went out the back exit. So the firemen were there first? Yeah, they knocked on his door. He opened up the door and he came out to move the machete. Firefighters called police as residents started fleeing the building. Police say four victims were taken to hospital with serious life-altering injuries. She looks like she's 12 years old when she's 20. She looks like she's 12. He chopped her fingers off, chopped her in the head. The attack shut down the Granville Strip. The suspect was arrested and taken to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Doug Spencer, former Vancouver Police Department officer, 30 years with the VPD. Doug now works to keep young people out of gangs. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Doug, thanks for coming on. You're more than welcome, Mike. Okay, Doug, this sounds like absolute insanity, mayhem down there in Granville Street on Saturday night. First responders going down there. It was uh, fire Firefighters showing up first with reports of the smell of gasoline there. And it was he went after these firefighters first, but man, oh man, a guy coming out of a, a rooming a, a rooming house suite with a machete. Just it, it sounds like this guy was just going after anybody in there. What what are you hearing about it? Yeah, well, I would quite certainly see high on something, or suffering like some serious uh, mental illness could be caused from drug addiction it could be just a mentally ill person but you know the dousing with gasoline sounds like probably meth that sounds like it sounds like meth meth methamphetamine yeah meth addicts when they get high they get uh they go into drug psychosis yeah and they start seeing things and all sorts of stuff right so you know, either way, the guy's obviously got mental issues. He should be uh, getting help instead of just being left alone down there in Hastings Street and Gramble and stuff. Like the politicians got got to start taking care of these people. The uh, the general manager here of this rooming house above the Roxy nightclub said that this is a guy who was typically quiet, kept to himself. They always seem to be quiet, the quiet ones who act out like this, but. You know, I don't. Who knows if there were warning signs about this particular guy? There's an investigation underway. But I mean, let me ask you about an attack like this. Like, what goes through the minds of a police officer or any other first responder? A guy's coming at you with a machete. Like, how do you deal with that? Well, you you try and create distance and use obviously verbal commands and make him understand if he if he's seen things. You know, just hearing a human talk to him in a, a lower uh, voice can calm them down. There's all sorts of stuff, but um, you know, when they're in drug psychosis or they're in schizophrenic, they can be really bad. You know, and a lot of people talk about having social workers show up instead of police. Here's a perfect yeah. example, right? Yeah, so social right. workers are going to get carved up. 
Although these yeah. people need social workers, but you know, there's you got to settle things down and make everybody safe before you start doing that. In in your 30 year career as a police officer, I'm sure you've had to deal with situations like this this many times, and you're dealing with someone who's high or going through potentially some kind of psychotic episode. What is that like to to deal with? Oh, it's pretty volatile. Um, yeah. You know, years ago, uh, I had, had to deal with a guy with a knife. I ended up shooting him because he's going towards my partner. He's going to stab him. You know, it's not something policemen want to do. It's the last thing. But you just have to protect the people around you and as well as the policemen you're working with, right? You, you can't let them be at risk. Yeah, and, and thankfully in this case, uh, there, there were no fatalities here, thank goodness. I mean, the injuries that were suffered by these victims, though, police describing them as life-altering injuries. And we've talked to a firefighter who's described some of these injuries, of, and we're talking like serious head injuries, upper body injuries caused by this machete attack. I mean, this was an absolutely brutal and gruesome attack. And like when it, when a police officer draws a sidearm here and has to deal with a situation like that, are you typically trying to shoot to injure? You just shooting to stop the threat. Yeah. Right. You shoot center master train because it's not like a movie where you shoot the knife out of his hand or whatever. That's make believe, right? You got to stop the threat. Hopefully, you shoot him. He falls down. He goes to the hospital. Things are fine. But sometimes it doesn't work that way, right? Um, it's really bad. Like in my situation, the guy ended up dying and I had to go to the inquest and, you know, I went up and apologized to the guy's mom. She kind of understood, you know, I told her, you know, I didn't want to do that, but I had to protect my partner. That's just plain and simple. Speaking of Doug Spencer, 30 years with the Vancouver police department. Hey, Doug, you mentioned that, you know, we talk about on this show about the defund the police movement, which has got significant amount of support in Vancouver, including among some city councillors who want to cut the police budget and say that, you know, mental health calls, there should be a response from a social worker instead of a police officer. Like you said, I mean, you described this as kind of a perfect example of how that doesn't often is not going to work. I mean, you send a, a, a social worker down there with a clipboard to deal with someone going through a psychotic episode, most of, they need the police there to protect them. Yeah, no, for certain. And, you know, ambulance, fire, the fire phoned us because we're trained to deal with this, to try and de-escalate it, right? And so nobody gets hurt and stuff. But you, I'd love all these woke people to go down there and try and deal with this guy, Yeah. right? We'll see how fast they're wanting to defund the police when the, the guy's running at them with a machete yeah yeah what do you think needs to be done like we saw a, a a statement put out on the weekend by vancouver mayor kennedy stewart saying that calling on the province calling on the provincial government to do more on this he says he needs something needs to be done about a criminal justice system that has uh, releases repeat offenders over and over and over again onto the streets he wants more resources for mental health services and i i note that the mayor seems to be changing his kind of tone on this stuff i mean you might remember earlier he was saying the city is safe and crime is actually going down because we got an election coming in the fall maybe that has something to do with it but what what do you think needs to be done what should be the top priority well any person needs 
a roof over their head, a bed, food, and if they need mental assistance with a physician, get it for them. If they need um, addiction treatment, get it for them. Spend money. We pay taxes. Spend it. Don't sit there and try and fix it with a, a needle and thread, which is what they do, right? Spend our tax money on the people that need it. And you'll see the problem start slowing down and going away, and hopefully these people get their lives back, right? It's just ridiculous. I don't know why they always wait till something serious happens before there's a change. Can you talk a little bit about the, you know, the emotional impact that are felt by first responders, police officers in a, a gruesome, bloody, violent scene like this, especially when there's a police-involved shooting? You've been through one yourself. You've just described like, what kind of impact does that take? What kind of toll does that take on sort of firefighters, police officers who respond to a scene like this? Well, yeah, I mean, you get PTSD over it. I'm, I'm yeah. quite positive I have PTSD over my incident and other things I witnessed and was part of, right? I went and talked to a, a mental health worker. I, I kind of spoke it out. Um, and all of a sudden, I had all this pressure taken off my shoulders. But some people, it just doesn't work as easy as that, right? They have to continue to go to psychiatrists and stuff and get counseling. It's really tough to deal with. I'm sure it is, Doug. Thank you very much for coming on to discuss it today. I appreciate it. You're more than welcome, Mike. All right. Talking about the gruesome machete attack on Granville Street on a Saturday night, do you think these type of attacks and mayhem are getting worse on the streets of Vancouver. What about where you live or work? Phone me on the open line on that real quickly, will you? Let me know if you think it's getting worse out there. 604-280-9898. What are you seeing on the street where you live or work or visit? Let me know if you think that this type of uh, violence on the streets is getting worse in our city right now. 604 604- 280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Check in with John Claridis now owner of the Marquee Wine Cellar in the West End. And John is an advocate for safer streets in our city. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, John. Hey, good morning, Mike. What do you think of this, uh, this mayhem down there on Granville on Saturday night? It's just another example of what you've been talking about for months now. Oh, I've been talking about it for, for years. This is what yeah. happens when you put people who need help, who need to be really institutionalized and medicated and watched most likely 24-7 and put them into a hotel room by themselves. And, uh, you know, delusional moments may be fueled also with drugs, and uh, this is what you get. Um, and if it was on, wasn't it? I can't recall. I, re, I remember reading that. Was it in his apartment or was it on the street that he was? Well, it, uh, it's, it started in a rooming house above the Roxy. And uh, the the first responders who showed up were firefighters responding to a call of smell of gasoline, and then the mayhem started. Exactly. So, you know, we don't have the necessary infrastructure to take care of these people. And the city of Vancouver and uh, the province thought it would be wise to house them all in one concentrated area on Granville Street, and we can see what's happened. Listen, I was in front of Body Energy Club on Davy getting my smoothie the other day. I had noticed this sketch guy. He was he started hassling two women in front of uh, in front of there. So I came to the rescue, and he's you know he's threatening me. Um, you know, fortunately, I can relatively take care of myself, and uh, he backed he backed away, but. 
this is just this is just me at one o'clock in the afternoon. I can't imagine it, it, with women, especially, uh, or other people just minding their own business. It happens all the time. You, you're reading about it more and more. Yeah, do you think it, it, you it's think it's get, it's getting you think it's getting worse? I think it's getting worse. Um, I know there's as as the statistics said, it was you know four point two uh, unprovoked ta- attacks a day. We will see what the statistics are. I'll try and find uh, find out what they are. But uh, you know, Vancouver is not the place it once was, and uh, something has to be done about it. And uh, I think it starts from the mayor. I don't think he's yeah. doing such a great job. And I know David Eby's looking at it. Um, it was what is it, 120 days to take a look at what needs to be done. But well, well speaking I mean, of, speaking of Eby, let's listen to a clip of him here. He was a guest on the show recently, and we talked about some of the crime and mayhem we're seeing on the streets of Vancouver. What his priority would be in dealing with it. He's going to be the next uh, premier of British Columbia. We all know that. Here's what he had to say to me, and I'll get your thoughts. When you're talking about someone who has had multiple uh, offenses and they are released on bail and they immediately violate those conditions, they need to be detained until their trial for the safety of the public and the reputation of the criminal justice system. And so, you know, when when I look at this and I look at the federal government and how long it takes to get laws changed and and their process, uh, it's pretty obvious to me that we need to have provincial responses as well. He's poised to be the next premier of B.C. here, and I'm certain you would like what you what you heard there, John. But, you know, talk is one thing. Action is another. Your thoughts? Well, you know, look, uh, when he was in uh, in opposition, I went to him with my business on how, how we were compromised by the previous government. The man listened to me or listened to our little part of the industry. And a couple of years later, he you know set up a, a, a paddle and it was called BTAP. And their recommendations were to give the private wine stores beer and spirits, which the liberals did do. We got it. So yeah, he got it done. It took a few years. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the man does get things done, at least from my perspective. Yeah. And so uh, I have I have confidence in him, and you know, he's a very articulate, very calculated I- individual, and hopefully, you know, he'll he'll get things done. Um, I think he'll be, you know, I think he'd be a pretty good pre- uh, premier. But you know, we've we've got to get a handle on this on the street because. Oh, you know, walking down the street, down Gravel Street or any other street doesn't seem to be safe. Right. Doesn't matter what time of day. Let's squeeze a call in here. Pete on the line in Vancouver. Pete, you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Hi. One study showed that 50% of meth users had ADHD. Another showed that, sorry, 55. The other one showed that 70%. Only 5% of adults have ADHD. The problem is Horgan government is not demanding doctors be trained on ADHD so they don't get diagnosed and treated, so they self-medicate with drugs. So stop pretending to care about mental health and and demand people be properly trained on the conditions. And so they're not self-medicating with drugs, less rates of homelessness, less rates of crime, but, you know, actually do something than just pretend to care and do nothing. Spend the money. Thank you for that. Thank you for that call, Pete. Hey, John, thank you. Go ahead, John. You, know, you have that, twenty that, seconds. That, that just so that that hits home. You know, that I can speak with relative story about you know ADHD, and if you don't get have good family support, there are a lot of okay. people out there that just don't have confidence in themselves, and uh, they, they self medicate. Caller was thank, right. Thank you, John.
All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Alex Jones trial now and its aftermath. Jones, of course, the notorious conspiracy theorist, the host of InfoWars, who notoriously claimed that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings were staged and faked. There were 20 children and six teachers and school staff who were killed in that attack in 2012. Uh, Jones had repeatedly said on his shows that the shootings were faked and staged as a pretext for increased gun control in the United States. He was sued by parents of some of the victims at the school and now the outcome of the trial. Jones ordered to pay $45.2 million U.S. in punitive damages to the parents of one child. That is in addition to the $4.1 million for the suffering he put, through, he put them through for claiming for years that that deadly school shooting was, in fact, a hoax. I've got Brian Dunning standing by to discuss this case and its aftermath. Have a listen to this here first. This is one of the, the many uh, dramatic moments in this trial. We're going to play a few of them here for you, but this is Alex Jones under cross-examination during the trial admitting that the Sandy Hook shootings were actually real and not faked. Have a listen to this. Do you know where I got this? No. Mr. Jones. I truly, when I said those statements, when I say something, I mean it, that I really could believe that it was totally staged at that point. Do you understand now that it was absolutely irresponsible of you to do that? It was, especially since I've met the parents, and it's, it's, it's 100% real. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Brian Dunning. Brian is the host of the Skeptoid podcast, and he's an expert on conspiracy theories. And I'm very pleased to welcome Brian back to the show. Brian, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure, sir. Okay, Brian, there were a lot of really dramatic moments in this trial. We're going to play a couple of couple more here in a moment. But that one there that we just heard, where Jones is under cross-examination, uh, there were there was a famous confrontation between him and a, and a mother of one of the children who was killed at Sandy Hook as well, uh, and where he admits that oh it, it is a hundred percent real. Now that I've met the parents, I, I admit that it was real. Like how important was that part of the testimony in this in this case? Do you think? I, I you know I I can't speak to how important that was, but uh, it's it's also well known that when you're losing a lawsuit, you tend to say whatever is going to minimize the damage. So yeah. that's exactly what we would expect any defendant in his position to say. Um, and also, in another one of the exchanges, he said, uh, yes, it was absolutely real. However, the media still ran with lies that I was saying it wasn't real. And that itself is an obvious lie because, I mean, look at the number of times he has said that it wasn't real. Uh, it's countless. So I don't believe what he said for a minute. Let's have another play another exchange here. This is really interesting. This is an exchange between the judge and Alex Jones. This is Judge Maya Guerra Gamble, and here she is admonishing Jones to stop lying on the witness stand. Have a listen to this. It seems absurd to instruct you again that you must tell the truth while you testify. Yet here I am. You must tell the truth while you testify. This is not your show. Okay, this is not your show. You must tell the truth when you're under oath in a courtroom. 
And I thought that was another interesting moment. Do you think this guy, what do you think of this guy, Alex Jones, as, as an expert on this kind of stuff, Brian? Like, do you think when he was doing his shows, he, he realized that he knew he was lying, but he was just doing it to make money? I mean, what, what do you think was motivating him? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the million-dollar question. I mean, none of us can be inside Alex Jones's head. None of us knows what he actually believes. But, you know, there's the old saying, if you repeat a lie often enough, eventually you come to believe it yourself. Yeah. Uh, he makes his money with conspiracy theories. He knows that. He's not an idiot. Um, I, I, I believe that at some level he knows that uh, what he's saying isn't true. But also I believe that uh, overwhelmingly he's pandering to his audience, which is a huge audience of uh, very passionate conspiracy theory believers. I think he's going to say whatever he knows is going to please his audience. And he's done it so much. Probably all his friends are conspiracy theorists. Probably everything he reads and watches is conspiracy theory content. Uh, I, I think he's probably very deeply ensconced in that world. Yeah, and as a guy who's an expert and a follower on, the, on of this world, Brian, and a documenter of it, like how how influential or how powerful was is Alex Jones or or was Alex Jones with his Infowars show? Oh, extremely. And I don't think this is going to diminish it in the, in the slightest. In fact, I think it's going to increase it because this is just another example of, you know, the, the system coming and cracking down on people willing to speak the truth. Uh, and uh, I, I think this is going to increase his popularity among his audience, if anything. Really? You think that this, this is not going to do him in? I don't think it's going to do him in. I don't think yeah. it's going to impact any of the average conspiracy theorists out there. Who I do think it's going to impact is the major media companies who are going to think twice about, hey, do I really want to have this person? Do I really want to give this person a show? I tell you right now, Spotify is shaking in their boots about their reportedly $200 million deal with Joe Rogan. Um, and they're probably wishing they hadn't done that. And I think you're going to see fewer um, major media deals with people who have espoused and embraced conspiracy theory culture. Yeah. Speaking of Joe Rogan, he said on his his podcast last week that, you know, what is the problem or what's the big deal about Alex Jones? He's entertaining. He's very funny. Mm -hmm. He described it almost as kind of like performance art that this guy does. And, and he he finds Alex yeah. Jones to be funny and entertaining. What do you think of that take? I bet that's a popular take. I mean, yeah. and Alex Jones in one of his previous trials has even said, hey, I'm playing a character up here. Mm. But, you know, there's the popular saying, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. So First Amendment, freedom of speech, saying whatever you want to say, that's all fine. Go for it all day long. But when you cross the line, and Alex Jones is notorious for crossing the line and actually defaming these poor people to the point where they're getting death threats, they're getting doxxed. They're getting they, literally millions of people out there hate these parents and believe that they are anti-American. Yeah. You know, that that is crossing the line. And he has now harmed people through his misuse of what he believes is freedom of speech. Speaking of Brian Dunning, he's an expert on conspiracy theories. His podcast is, is called Skeptoid that I, I highly recommend to you. Okay, we've got the Joe Rogan clip. So let's have a listen to this together here, Brian, and I'll get some more of your thoughts here. So here is the podcaster Joe Rogan speaking last week about Alex Jones. Have a listen to this. Alex Jones is hilarious. It is a kind of performance art along with like a little bit of horror. 
Like, what is he doing that's so awful? This, it's, inter it's entertaining. Like, why is it only acceptable if you have some kind of entertainment? Because there's so many rap videos that you could watch that I enjoy, but they're talking about shooting people and robbing people, and it's everywhere on YouTube. Yeah. It's so prevalent, yeah. and somehow or another, that's okay. Okay, what do you think of that? You know, we touched earlier on this, but when he says it's entertainment, you know, what is it that's so bad that he's doing? You know, other people, you know, rap songs talk about shooting people and violence. What, what's the difference there? How do you answer that? So the, the difference is when you start talking about general concepts versus specific attacks against actual individual people. And, you know, what Rogan is doing there is it's a rationalization. He's, he's just trying to make an excuse, a justification for why it's okay to do this kind of thing. Now, if you're just if you're just spewing random conspiracy theories, oh, 9-11 was an inside job, that's fine. But when you attack specific living, especially innocent individuals, yeah. uh, these 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 parents who were not public figures had no desire to ever become public figures. Um, that's where uh, that's where they, the penalties right. need to become severe. And they have. <laughs> right. And they certainly have been severe with the, these massive judgment against Alex Jones last week. Could, could you talk a little bit more about Brian, about. You know, the parents, the parents who brought these lawsuits against Alex Jones, you know, what did they what did they go through? Like they received threats, right? Yeah. I, I, and I can speak with with some experience here. You know, I'm basically a science communicator and everyone who does science communication gets death threats on a regular basis. And you come to realize that most of them are just noise. Um, you don't have to actually worry about some of them showing up your house. But occasionally, once in a blue moon, that actually does happen. And I think that what these parents were afraid of is extremely legitimate. Yes, they've been doxxed and they've been, they've been hated on a million times in social media, etc. And most of that doesn't really make any difference, except it makes their lives hell. But once in a while, there will be that one person, like the guy who took his rifle down to the Pizzagate restaurant in D.C., yeah. Um, there is going to be that one person who is a legitimate threat to these people's lives and livelihood. And uh, so, yeah, these kind of attacks that uh, that Jones has been making for since 1999 um, are absolutely over the line and unacceptable. OK, we got a few minutes left with my guest, Brian Dunning, as we continue to discuss the Alex Jones trial and its aftermath. Brian is an expert on conspiracy theories. His podcast is Skeptoid. I recommend it to you. Skeptoid.com is Brian's website. Hey, Brian, let me play another amazing moment in the Alex Jones trial. Maybe this is the most famous one of all that emerged here during this trial. And uh, Alex Jones at one point had testified that there were no text messages on his phone related to the Sandy Hook school shootings. It turns out that the appellant lawyer here in the case was given a copy, a digital copy of his entire phone that proved otherwise. Let's listen to that moment here in the courtroom when you hear this lawyer inform Alex Jones, hey, I've got your entire cell phone records here. Have a listen to this. Do you know where I got this? No. Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago, 12 days ago, your attorney's messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years. And when informed 
did not take any steps to identify it as privileged or protected in any way. And as of two days ago, it fell free and clear into my possession. And that is how I know you lied to me when you said you didn't have text messages about Sandy Hook. Did you know that? I See, I told you the truth. This is your Perry Mason moment. Okay, it was a Perry Mason moment there. Ryan, yep. what's, uh, what do you think of that exchange and this revelation here and, and the significance of it? Honestly, on, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's kind of fun and funny. Uh, but on the other hand, I remain very concerned that this is going to give him everything he needs to have a mistrial declared. Um, because an error of that magnitude by his own lawyer. Um, yeah, and I'm not a legal analyst. So, yeah. you know, this is this is not a, not an expert opinion. But um, I'm, I'm concerned that uh, that it was going to be an expensive bit of fun. For, for those of us who'd like to see justice being done. Yeah, and Alex Jones's lawyers have, have indicated that they, they intend to challenge that as well. Hey, Brian, just in the couple of minutes we got left here, I mean, you were talking earlier that you think this is not necessarily the end of Alex Jones, it's not the end of his, his show InfoWars, but man, oh man, when you take a look at the scale of this judgment against him, with uh, millions of dollars being awarded to this, at least one Sandy Hook parent, forty-five point two million in punitive damages. This is just one, one uh, case that he faces, one lawsuit. Could this not completely, like, if he loses subsequent cases as well? I mean, he's looking at hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. How do you survive that? You know, I, 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 I don't know. And part of the part of the problem is that. Infowars and Infowars Health, or IW Health, or whatever it's called, are um, private companies, and nobody has any public information about their actual finances. Uh, so, do they have that much money, you know, in their petty change cash box, or is this going to completely wipe them out? We don't know the answer. You know, most of Alex Jones's business model is selling these snake oil supplement products. And I feel confident saying that because it's been said in print so many times. Uh, he sells nonsense supplement, health supplement products, you know, masculinity products and, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's where most of his money comes from. Uh, were they a defendant on this? I don't even know that. Are they going to be impacted? I don't know that. But this could very easily not impact his cash flow in the slightest. And although it may force him to change business entities, you know, declare bankruptcy yet another time for in info wars and start up something else, um, I can very easily see that happening. Uh, and maybe he'll be a little more careful with uh, pointing out to specific people by name. But I'm afraid that this is not going to have uh, that big of an impact. Like I okay. said before, I do think it will impact major media's outlets' decisions to support these people. Well, you don't think it'll be like a major deterrent. We just got 30 seconds here, Brian, like it won't be a major deterrent. The the conspiracy theories will continue to thrive and spread. I think this this feeds the conspiracy theories. In, in, in the mind of the conspiracy theorists, this judgment is evidence that the system is rigged against the people, quote unquote, willing to tell the truth. Brian, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much. It's been a, it's been a blast as always.